Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Today we have the first piece of content that celebrates the artists that helped make Memphis legendary with our Legends series. Today we sat down to talk to Brad Webb, who played us some tracks from his studio, and we also got to hear about some of his past influences, guitars, and perspective on making music in general. True to Memphis spirit, Brad reminds us that rules are made to be broken. Enjoy. All right, I didn't mean to interrupt there. I want to hear what you guys were talking about. We're talking about the, the Gibson up here, yeah? Yeah, he was just asking me the story behind it. What's, what's that guitar called <laughs> for listeners, people who can't see it? Uh, what model number is that? ES-295. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the gold one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically, Gibson you know, made custom versions of his original guitar, and they had like an event um, where they were going to give some away, and I don't know. Who's like, he? Uh, well, it was Gibson was giving some of these away. Whose guitar, were, though? That's the Scotty Moore signature guitar. Um, and, you know, I went the whole night. I wasn't, like, expecting a guitar. I, that's kind of the last thing that I was expecting. But uh, somebody else in the family got one that I had never met and kind of just met that first night. And a bunch of other hmm. people got it. And I don't know. There was just some, like, dumb politics behind it. Well, you know, yeah. but you're the you're you're the grandson that plays, right? <laughs> yeah, but I I think that uh, there was just some some dumb politics behind it. But uh, but after he passed, um, somebody that works at Gibson told me that you know there was one f- for me that w- that I was supposed to get that night, and I just never got it. Mm. And they they brought this guitar to me, so somehow sweet somehow I got it. Thank goodness. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Yeah. That's uh basically that's a a one seventy five ES one seventy five, but they did these gold models and they were called ES two ninety fives. And Scotty's probably had had a gold vine in the pit guard actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On that original one. And they were also at that particular time they were like uh the frets in them were like a fretless wonder black beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully they didn't do that to you where you got, because, uh, you know, we bend notes these days. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> that yeah. magnificent voice that you hear, that's Mr. Brad Webb over here joining us at the home for our first Legend series. And, um, yeah, I think that's appropriate to start out the conversation with Scotty Moore. That's definitely a Memphis music legend, and Brad Webb is another link in that chain, and we have a chance to sit down with him tonight and talk about you know who Brad Webb is, Brad. Yeah, well, I definitely a lover of old. Uh, watched, you know, from the fifties. Watched looking at guitars and seeing how they sounded on record. You know, different ones sound different. That's also what they call a Melita bridge, mm. which usually was on a Gretsch. I was about to say. Well, he did like the Country Gentleman. That was <laughs> that was his that was his second guitar that he used was that one. So these were more uh, intonable, where you move that screw in the saddle and move right. back and forth. Where the, probably, you know, a lot of these uh, it, it could have come with a wooden bridge I was about to or say it could have come bridge. a tunematic. But that was uh, he probably took one off one of his Gretches and put it on there or got it from a Gretch. No, I think, I think when they made this, they, <clears throat> they, you know, asked him what specs he would put into a new guitar. And I think that was part of what he put in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did love the country gentleman. That was what he played mm-hmm. mostly. Brad, what would your guitar be? What would be your legacy guitar? Oh, 
Well, my first my first electric was a one pickup silver tone, and then probably for my sixteenth birthday, I got a used uh, sixty two Strat, actually from Summer Avenue, not too far from where we're located right now. That was uh, Paul Kraft's guitar in Drum City back then, and uh, kind of a hometown favorite uh, guitar player that was in. Uh, she, anyway, Wayne Thompson, who, uh, I mean, their band was kind of one of the mainstay uh, bands in this town. You'd see their advertisement where they were playing in the commercial appeal or on Friday there would be a little music section of the paper. Uh, right now, the name of his band, uh, I can't remember it right this minute, but uh, Wayne Thompson, he was a guitar teacher there, and he actually had a... Uh, like a 59 Black Beauty, and, and I'd go to guitar lessons with my little silver tone, <laughs> and he'd go, man, just play mine. <laughs> and I'd pick his up, and it's like, oh, yeah, there's a big difference between the uh, $38 silver tone and the uh, Gibson Black <laughs> yeah, Beauty yeah. through a super reverb sitting in a room, you know. <laughs> but uh, and that, And really, that's one of the things where uh, – you know, going as a kid, and you're going taking guitar lesson, and there's all these other instruments, and you get that you hang out and hear people play, or hear a strat through this, or a jazz master through that. You know, you hear all these different sounds, and uh, you know, as a beginner, uh, you know, just paying attention. I mean, it's like probably when I went to festivals, uh, when people were maybe partying too much. That would be the person I didn't want to go with because I, I'd be there with my binoculars and really just wanting to hear the music and see what people were playing through to get that sound. Yeah. So did you start playing when you were 16? Is that when you started taking lessons? Uh, mm, I'm thinking I got my, uh, let's see, 67. Probably in 65 uh, for my 14th birthday, I probably got a, Actually, a K, what they call a Stella guitar, real cheap guitar from Summer Avenue. Crondelay was right down the street. And, I mean, this guitar was so cheap, it had a painted-on pick guard. <laughs> it was twelve ninety nine. It was like a Sears guitar kind of? Yeah, it would be a Sears. Uh, back then, those uh, Silver Tones, uh, True Tones, uh CMI, which was Chicago Musical Instruments, Chicago was a big, you know, really like a hub for the whole United States. Uh, they made a lot of uh, a lot of guitars, you know, were distributed out of there, and a lot of them were made. But this was a this one was a K. Uh, you know, it's one of those deals where you get your first guitar, and your parents say, uh, "Well, if you learn how to play it, you can get an electric yeah. one." You know, and, and you get this book of these, you know, and you go through the book and what? Maybe one day. Yeah, yeah. Three days. You know, you, well, you go through the, what it is, you figure out real quick that your fingers are going to be sore. So you can't do but so much. You can look at the book yeah. and you start playing. And then when your fingers are almost bleeding, I want to say I still have the F chord scar on the first <laughs> finger because the guitar was so... uh the action was so high that you just almost couldn't make it. You know, and then uh, I think maybe three months later, I got a, or maybe the next year, maybe it was the next year, I got a Silvertone with one pickup. 
and then uh, uh, another year later, then I got a used 62 Strat, you know, for my 16th birthday. So, like, 14, 15, 16, <coughs> um, you know, just all the stuff. I mean, my first guitar teacher was a, an old guy that had a 175, and then he also had an old big-body Epiphone that was beautiful through... I want to say an old Epiphone amp with reverb, and uh, he and you know and he was one of those guys. He just played by ear, yeah. And actually, uh, that was you don't realize that you know as a youngster, basically he would show me some chords, and then say when I came back the next week, he would play chords with his back to me, and I would have to name the chord. Hmm. Like ear training, yeah, kind that's of pretty thing. good. Yeah, yeah that's and a good so really, even though he it was the he was kind of a country picker, maybe not what I was into, but that ear training on the beginning that was kind of a good thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then my next day, I mean, I took maybe yeah, you know, it's one of those things where I think I took four lessons from Tom Brewer, <clears throat> and then I took uh, maybe. Eight lessons, maybe not even about eight lessons from Wayne Thompson, and then I want to say one week he was like, well, "What do you want to do?" And I'm like, "Well, this song, uh, 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 Yardbird song, over under sideways down." And of course, he was in a band. They kind of did the commercial dance. I want to say it was uh, the Blazers, but I could be wrong. But uh, Anyway, and he goes, well, show me what you got. And I'm, you know, this little lick. And he's like, well, man, uh, it looks like you're on your way. You don't really need me. So that was like, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because at that point, you know, when you're young, uh, me as a guitar teacher now, I mean, learning a song is cool. Uh, learning some theory behind it is kind of more important because usually I – even 40 years ago, I might look at a student and go, man, you know, I can get you going. I want you to kind of do, you know, I want, you know, we can do some songs, you know, if it, whatever it was. When I was teaching at uh, Strings and Things, I think I had 45 students a week. But uh, I'd look at them. It's like, man, I don't want to be your guitar teacher when you're 65 years old. I want yeah. you to learn yeah. the theory of, you know, I want you to – you know, you see, that's awesome. Your own I, wish, I wish I had guitar teachers like that. Most of my teachers, when I was actually taking lessons, were like, well, what song do you want to learn today? And it's nah, like, I don't I'm really not. want to learn a song. I want to learn how to play guitar. I was, you should have. I was the weirdo. I wanted you. <laughs> In fact, one time uh, I was given uh, Duck Dunn's nephew, David Dunn, who's a great bass player. Of course, he was playing guitar. And uh, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll. Anyway, his dad called me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure he's. I'm sure I've told him this story because I, I gave him lessons, and then he was really into the shred thing, and so he ended up taking from Sean Lane. Yeah, mm. and uh, Sean from this old neighborhood. But uh, anyway, uh, David's uh, dad called me, Charlie, who was Duck Dunn's brother, and he goes, Brad. What's that shit David's coming home playing? You know, and I'm like, well, look, Mr. Dunn, you know, it's it's like he's young. His taste is going to change. You know, the, my deal is I'll show him. 
I'll get them going on this song, but at the same time, I want them to, you know, know some theory, some, you know, uh, you know, what all goes with that. Now, everything comes from the major scale. It's the it's basically the roots of the plant, and all these other little, you know, flat to third, flat to six, flat to seven. Everything comes from the major scale. Yeah, and uh, and at the same time, like. Uh, Chuck Berry, when he decided to sing on sing in a major key but play minor pentatonic, you know, we have these classical rules, but rules made to be broken, made to be broken, and you know, then we call them accidentals mm. in in music. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, I always tried to uh, you know try to get them to express themselves. You know, maybe especially. Uh, I may give them some, you know, back then I'd give them, you know, say the key of E, a one, four, or five that you could jam on because I want you to make up your phrases and your, you know, See, that's do awesome. your thing. That's awesome. I, I really <laughs> wish teachers were like that when I was taking lessons. <laughs> you know. Well, speaking of that, Brad, you've had quite a career in Memphis. You've done a lot of stuff creatively. If there's someone that is listening that maybe doesn't, like what? what's the quick background on Brad Webb and being in Memphis and playing music, producing music and... All the things that you've done. What's the skinny? And we'll go into it. No, the skinny was, uh, uh, well, you know, we all. Hard to sum up. You know, well, I mean, when you're young, you know, I was probably playing in a band by the time I was 15, you know, get about a year, year and a half on playing guitar. Not that I was, you know, anything to write home about, but, you you know, you get with some guys. Now, one thing, I I was in high school band, Mm -hmm. so... That also teaches you, you know, how this poor band director can get 30 people in sync to make good music. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and so when you're in your first bands, which usually back then it would be two guitars, bass, drums, maybe a lead singer or, you know, somebody in the band was a lead singer, you know, four or five guys and making, you know, obviously if it back then it probably was copy music trying to make it uh sound good you know enter some battle of the bands and uh i did all that stuff played cyo dances uh you know kind of like the uh there's a couple books out on it on uh, the 60s garage bands because i I would have been kind of during that era my dad has a couple of those books that he's made me uh read Oh, yeah. Well, I think your dad and I are real close to the same age. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then from there, uh, 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 you know, by probably my senior year, you play at school and you do the CYO dances. And uh, what we figured out is, like, I think I had a paper route, and then we had some other kind of little job, and then you start doing a few gigs, and it's kind of like, well, man, I can make the same money or more, and this is a whole lot more fun. Yeah, you know. Uh, of course, depending, you always had to have parents that put up with their kids setting up a band in what you know the living room oh, or yeah. the den. Think I've been there, you yeah, know. For sure. Or uh, <laughs> I want to say my there. drummer in high school. My mom was out of town, and it was one summer, and my drummer got drunk. And he punched a hole in the sheetrock in the living room, <laughs> mm. you know. So you know how well that went over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, parents that, uh, uh, and really parents that did that, you know, it's probably better to know where your kids are. Yeah. Than to not know where they are. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, <clears throat> but uh, from that, I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think so. it. Uh, 
you know, I did what, a little. What you, would you do after high school? Well, I was at State Tech, and they decided to start lowering grades, a letter grade, because of long hair. And then uh, that got wait, a little bit wait, squirrely. Because yeah, they were lowering hair. grades back in. So you got your your, gra- your grade reduced if you had long hair? In 1970 at State Tech. Yeah, exactly. My buddy that was a little older than me, we both went to State Tech, like architectural, mechanical drawing. But uh, him or Chris uh, called like the news station because that's kind of like illegal. This to lower somebody's grades for their – I mean, it'd be like, it's definitely I'm questionable. lowering your grades because I don't like how your teeth look or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't like your socks. But, uh, yeah, that well, see, at that point when he did that, then we were toast. Mm. And uh, and at that time, he got his draft number 16. My, my draft number was 17. So then we're trying to figure – because what would happen, that was on a quarter system. Memphis State was on a – semester system they wouldn't accept our credit so boom we were back in the the lottery for the draft and we ended up joining the naval air reserve and ended up in an attack squadron little a4 jets i kind of i kind of disappeared just there for a minute doing that kind of stuff and then uh when i got out of that little bit of active duty i kind of you know when you're sitting in boot camp or you're sitting there uh on the USS John F. Kennedy, you know, putting 500-pound bombs on a jet or mm. Zuni pod rockets. It kind of makes you, you know, when you are when you finally do get in bed to chill out and you're sitting there thinking, man, if I ever get out of this shit, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm going back to music, yeah. you know. And it gave me the ins- – now, what it does give you, the military, a sort of – you realize how much you can do focus-wise – uh, you might be just having the structure. You mean just having like well, so much? Uh, you had so many things to do, and you may only get four hours sleep a night. And say if you do that for a week, obviously when you're young. I mean, I was probably twenty, twenty-one. But you see, you kind of see this like, man, I've been effing off all my time. You know, you know, doing this and hanging out with my yeah. buddies or doing that. It kind of, and so I ended up taking theory and composition at Memphis State. This is when you came back. When I came, well, yeah, when mm-hmm. I when I came back, probably seventy two, and uh, to to get in the class, they would stick a piece of music in front of you, piano. They'd hit the first note, and you would have to sing the rest of the page to get into the class. Mm. And no uh, pressure. Yeah, no Yeah. well, luckily, I mean, I had played clarinet and bass clarinet in high school band. You know, Grandma had me in the church choir, you know what I mean? So I kind of knew what was going on there, a little bit of beginner piano. And, of course, once I got in the class and uh, did pretty good, uh, I want to say after the first semester, you go talk to the whoever to set up your next, you know, semester or something, and they were like, well, you, you're supposed to have had two years piano proficiency to be in this class. I'm like, well, I didn't know, you know what I mean? But I made it. Th- I, I did a year of theory and comp, and then uh, at that point, there was no guitar teachers out there, and they were on me about uh, either doing violin or some other string instruments, and it's like I'm gone, man. Yeah. I, you know, I was in a band, you know, doing some gigs and. Uh, 
which uh, actually that was a band. I answered an ad in a paper uh, for a band called Tar Baby, and then I ended up getting a buddy of mine, Dom McNatt, uh, lead singer, a couple of other buddies ended up being in that band, and I did that. For, there was a couple of different transitions of that band. Then uh, the guy I was telling you about earlier today, uh, I joined a band around 1975, uh, Roland Robinson, who was mm, a bass okay. player. Uh, he was originally from Detroit, and he had played with uh, Ann Peoples and Eddie Floyd and you know, he'd moved here. He was a cousin to the Hodges, like the high rhythm section. Yeah. Uh, Teeny Hodges, Charles Hodges, Leroy, they call Leroy Flick, Fred Hodges, uh, Howard Grimes, the drummer. <clears throat> but uh, I played in a band called Quo Jr. And uh, I want to say we did some demos over at Shoe, Andy Black, in those early days. And then we did some demos at uh, Willie Mitchell's, which this is a good little story. You know, we're in the studio and a uh, great singer, uh, William Brown, he's the engineer. And we're up there and something's not happening. Mm. You know what I mean? And so somebody goes and gets Willie. And Willie just walks up there and leans over the board and goes, tweak, tweak, click. There you go, and walked right back out there. It was, you know, that's one awesome. of the things. You know, I mean, as we all know, you get behind a board with a lot of buttons. Yeah, it don't take but one button to be. All of a sudden, you're in a different place than where you want to be. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> not, so you, this wasn't was long that. before you opened up your studio. Was that well? This '75. Um, moving right along. Uh, Quo Jr. Uh, after Quo Jr. was maybe, uh, and you really got me thinking, 76. Uh, actually, may have been uh, Silver Streak, which was kind of a, a six-piece band, two guitars, bass, drums, keys, lead singer. Probably three of the guys could have been lead singers. You know, a lot of that kind of a. Uh, Music in the 70s, you know, 77, 78. I mean, from, I don't even know what all, uh, from ZZ Top, Skinner, Foreigner, uh, I mean, all kinds of music. Carrying around a big PA, did did uh, a lot of joint gigs with, say, uh, uh, Southern Creed, which was, a, a, you know, a favorite band in Memphis. Back then, Target would have been. Uh, a lot of us played the high cotton or the thirsty elephant, which which was kind of a more of a a beer joint type of place. But a lot of great bands, hot dogs played there. Uh, I want to say that amazing rhythm aces. Their first gig was at the thirsty elephant. Really? Yeah, and I mean I was there. Of course, that they went on to get you know win awards and things, but. Uh, it's really a great time to be coming up in Memphis, 60s, mm -hmm. 70s, the music. Uh, why, do you, why do you think that is? Man, there was an excitement. Uh, you know, it's like, say, one night uh, we're coming in a club, <clears throat> and, you know, the guys are going, man, the band that was here last week broke the record. And actually, it was a band called uh, Uncle Jam Band, 
which was some of my buddies. And, uh, you know, there was always a competition, but it was, uh, it was a healthy competition. You know what I mean? Somebody's coming in, man, you know, they kicked ass, you know, they, they sold more tickets, blah, da, 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 da. So your incentive is to, you know, it raised the bar, kept raising the bar, you know what I mean? And I think, uh, I feel like, I mean, in the sixties, even, you know, probably when I wasn't, uh, you know, didn't have as many, uh, flying hours on the guitar as maybe what I wished I had. Um, I just think that, that, uh, creative competitiveness, and, and I'm sure it's probably like that everywhere, but Memphis, there, there's a roots kind of thing. I mean, as a youngster, I, I want to say, uh, that first band I was in, we did some kind of little contest and, uh, Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper were the judges, which is Brooker T and the MGs. And I mean, here we are, ain't I'm in about the ninth grade, you know, and it's like in our little set list, you know, in which we didn't have an organ. We just had two guitars, bass, and drums. Yeah. And uh, we played Green Onions. <laughs> and uh, after, you know, and I, I don't think we won. I can't remember who won. I want to say uh, Bruce Barham's band won that particular night I was there. But uh, Duck Dunn walked up to us, and he was like, yeah, you guys got balls, man. Y'all y'all did that song we do. And he pointed at me. He goes, and the guitar player did the, did the keyboard line. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure there's no way I made it. I mean, I probably – there was a resemblance of yeah. a keyboard line because <clears throat> there really wasn't – you know, we didn't have all these pedals and things that we had. We didn't have access to all the tools that we have now. I mean, probably I was playing through a, a Strat, through a, an old uh, 1965 Silver Tone 212 combo, <laughs> you know, with cheesy reverb and uh, tremolo wasn't bad. Yeah. But uh, so when did yeah. you get into producing and making the music and on that end of things? Well, and why? My, I mean, my buddy, why'd you go from playing and jamming to to doing that side? Well, of it? It, it's it's kind of almost a thing i mean as you you know we i mean my first demo was maybe when i was 16 at sonic studios which was roland jane's uh next time was maybe uh i think we won some studio time at ardent and uh you know went in and cut a couple of songs really prepared brought our own engineer (coughs) one of our buddies from uh an old band called the tabs but because uh, uh, we knew we only had two hours to cut two songs, so we that's, had to really. That's not a lot of time. No, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean. Well, here we'll give you some studio time. You got two hours. Yeah, yeah. Did well, you get it done? It, Did you get it, the two songs done? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we had our own engineer. Uh, you set up ready. Up. We were ready. To, we were ready to get it and mixed. I mean, it was yeah. cut and mixed, that's which impressive. you know basically is like what we call a dump nowadays. Yeah, that's impressive. But. uh even uh, the first time I went in at Sonic, I think it was a two-hour block for a hundred bucks. And usually, what it was, there was a contest they were having, and we were entering this uh, WHPQ contest, Battle of the Bands, on the radio. Mm. They play your song, and people would call in and vote. Mm. And also, that studio—that's where if you wanted to be on the uh, 
George Klein dance party or what or whatever. There was two different names that he had there through the years. But if you wanted to be on TV in pantomime with your, you know, yeah. tape that you did, that's where you went. A hundred bucks, you know. Of course, a hundred bucks in uh, sixty-seven or sixty-eight. You know, I, I want to say I bought my strap for a hundred and eighty bucks yeah, used. So hundred bucks was a little bit of dough. Yeah, a little bit of a little. You know, change. but five guys that was twenty bucks a piece. Yeah. Uh, which is what's funny was it was it was like a really old machine, and at the end of the song, it was like this major seventh three part harmony thing, you know, ba ba da da ba ba, and you'd hear uh 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 uh, you had this had this slap back going on, you know. Of course, we thought you know we're the Beatles, man. You know, we thought <laughs> yeah. it was so cool. You know, how did he do that? And really, just as you go along and you get in the studio and you see. Different mics, different miking techniques, you know, effects, you know, different. I mean, I guess it's not for everybody. For me, I was always curious. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, technically and and just playing the guitar. Uh, probably my first pedals was a. Uh, I had a fuzz treble booster and a Vox wah wah. Those were my first effects. Mm. You know, uh, as far as outboard, you know, something you stomped on. And then, uh, you know, later on, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think. I uh, did some recording over at Memphis State, probably did some more. I mean, originally, me and Chris, my buddy that I played with early on, he was a little older than me. We were going to do a studio. And uh, when we got out of boot camp around – Mm, around 1974, Chris got killed on a, on his day job. High voltage oh hit him. Oh, my gosh. Some and, dangerous uh, stuff. And, and so, I mean, at that point, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I was playing, and, you know, we'd go in the studio with Roland Robinson, did a little bit of that stuff. And when I was in Silver Streak, I want to say when I was with him, uh, we only went in the studio once. Uh, there was a studio way, I mean, it wasn't there very long down on Summer Avenue. And I, it was Music Factory or something like that. But, uh, you know, at some point in time, uh, probably around 83, my buddy Roland got one of these Akai 12 tracks. And it looked like it ran on a little beta tape. Mm -hmm. And it was digital, but it was half inch tape. And, it would also bounce within itself pretty cool. So, I mean, you could probably record 20 tracks yeah. on this little 12-track. I ended up getting one. I was teaching out at uh, Strings and Things East. Um, think about what year. Uh, maybe like 85. And uh, Charlie had a video department in the back. It's not there anymore. I forget it became a hubcap place or something. But it was a really nice building on Mendenhall right before Poplar. Strings and Things East. And I, I taught guitar out there for quite a while. But he had this video department. And they had one of those Akai's. And somebody had put some money down on one. And I heard the rep. My, my teaching room was right where you would walk into the video room. And I heard the guy say something like, 
man, I'm tired of waiting on this guy to come up with the rest of the money. I've already had to pay for it or something. First person that's got, I don't know, four grand or something. I heard him say that. I'm like, hey, man, <laughs> I think I can come up with it. You know, and actually, I think I, uh, I mean, I used to buy old guitars, refret them, fix them up. It was kind of something I learned to do uh, early on. You know, go to a pawn shop and buy a 50 buck Gibson Melody Maker and level the frets and make it play good. Yeah. And then I'd actually turn around and sell it for a hundred and a quarter. Flipping some guitars. Uh, you know, is, so that, I, is that how you paid for it? Uh, Mostly? That On that, I probably had to sell a guitar. Uh, luckily, back then, it was one of those things where uh, when I was teaching, I was, I'd been, I'd taught guitar at several different places Central Academy. Uh, Don Day's music, uh, just kind of that's kind of it was kind of my little part time day job where I could just play guitar, and uh, you know I just got into buying old guitars and wheeling and dealing and playing them. And uh, back then, they, you know, they weren't when I first started. They weren't vintage. You know, that's kind of more of a uh, that started happening a little later. You know, they were just yep. used guitars, and some were cooler <laughs> than others. But uh, some I learned to do, and I, I probably sold a Strat or, you know, or I want to say one time I pawned two Strats to pick up on uh, some kind of crazy guitar that was a bunch of money because I, I figured in the long run it was a good investment. I just seemed to – I've always seemed to have an eye, I guess, from the first time Wayne Thompson put a – 58 Les Paul in my hands, and I was like, oh, crap, this is great. You know, you kind of figure out, and then you and then you play a new one, and it's like, well, this don't sound as good as that old 58. Why is that, you know? And it's just something I picked up on. I, I mean, all that stuff is so much money now that uh, I'm probably not in the game, so to speak. Because <laughs> some of those, I mean, uh, 59 Les Pauls, I think I had two of them and a 58, and a 60, you know, and that'd be a million bucks nowadays. Mm, yeah, mm -hmm. you'd have a nice uh, chunk of change. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, I mean, guitars that we used to buy for 1,200 bucks or two grand, and now they're 260,000 and 350,000 bucks. It's kind of crazy. <clears throat> of course, Gibson is doing a good job. Uh, I'm not sure why it took so many years to, I'd say in, I'd say since ninety five ninety seven to now they're they're really on their game really but I don't know why it took so long you know of course now you can't get Brazilian rosewood I was about and that's to say where, mm -hmm. you know there's unless somebody already has it you know and then you're not going to be able to make a hundred less balls with this right. wood or anything right. but it was just something I got into as far as recording always interested in it. Uh, even when I had an apartment, I had a little, you know, probably had two four tracks. Then I had an eight track Fostex. Then I got that Akai <clears throat> uh, around 85. Bought my house I'm in now, 86. <laughs> Took me about nine months. I had a heavy metal band practicing there, you know, and I knew when the cops quit coming, I was starting to get the place right. <laughs> you know, uh, there's. Well, so you brought some music with you today to share and talk about. I that's, did. That's, I did. that's some stuff that you did at the studio there, or what? 
Is that kind of a blend, uh, or this, what all you got going on? This first song, uh, we did we did do pre production at my place, and we were about it was about a year in the making as far as uh, we didn't sign the first contract. But this was a deal we did with uh, <clears throat> Johnny Phillips at uh, what's well, it Selecto Hits, but the label that we we were on was called Ice House. And uh, this would have been around 1995. This first song is uh, called Lover's Moon. I'm using an old cheap, uh, about a 65 silver tone with two lipstick pickups and open G. Oh, wow. <laughs> I knew you'd like that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. Drew, play it for us.
right. So tell us about that one. What you got going on there? Mm. What do I on that one? That yeah. was uh uh just an idea, uh, lover's moon, which is probably talking about a full moon. Um, just something that actually, that was just, I think an idea I had, I want to say, uh, blind Mississippi Morris lead vocals, harmonica. I'm sure Tony Adams had something to do with the lyrics. He usually does. He's a, a singing drummer. Uh, he's also a big few of those time. around here that you huh? know. See a few of those around here that you know. Singing yeah, drummers. yeah, yeah. He was raised. Not, we went to. We were in high school band together. Even though we okay. didn't play in bands together at that point, uh, he went to Austin, Texas when it was hot back then. And uh, but he's a, a singing drummer and uh, wrote a, a drum tuning. Uh, I'm sure I'll pronounce the name of the book wrong, but he wrote a book on tuning and, and he's a big drum tech along with being a great drummer and uh musician vocalist lyricist uh he now works for luke bryan big country guy so he uh and before then he was he actually he went from memphis to austin texas and then i think austin texas to atlanta and there was a studio down there called triclops probably did smashing pumpkins and i couldn't tell you who all they recorded yeah uh, but he's uh, are we on? You think? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. I got there. You go. I got to put the other headphone in. <laughs> That's yeah. a secret. Yeah, we were talking in between the while the song was playing. Yeah, I actually, like what you were saying. You were talking about how you've helped people break the break the rut, get out of the rut. Yeah, uh, I mean that was just an, an idea. That song's in an open G tuning for all the guitar buffs out there on a. About a 1965 silver tone, two lipstick pickups, Dan Electro type pickups. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's what that sound is. That that particular song there is probably through a, a Blackface uh, Pro Reverb 40 watt 212 Fender amp. A uh, little bit cleaner with the single coils. Uh, that was recorded at Crosstown, uh, which they're no longer there. I think they moved to, to Nashville. Mm, shame. Uh, yeah. A lot of studios come and go. Uh, of course, I've had my little studio almost 34 years coming up this May. And you were cutting last night. I was cutting Jack Ryle on a song last <laughs> night. On a, I've been pitching. Uh, I've got all these tunes and ideas from years and years yeah you're still making music regularly. oh yeah, yeah 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 all the time even though we don't even though none of us have a gig hardly yeah uh, uh of course we were talking about that i mean gigs can you know gigs are good for getting chops up and getting money in your pocket <clears throat> but always uh clubs that are original music friendly mm -hmm. maybe that's mm -hmm. the word i'm looking for you know, which Memphis, we've always had some. Uh, Stage Stop was kind of like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the New Daisy, Mike Glenn. Of course, that was Nita Macri at uh, I played Stage Daisy Stop. many times. Good, good old I think we Nita. all have. Yeah, Stage Wait, Stop. Which one? The Stage. Daisy. Oh, yeah. And the Stage Man. Stop also. Yeah, yeah, of course, Mike Glenn, people are always trying to get him to come out of retirement. Uh, <laughs> and Nita. I mean, and all those people, they were all friends, even though they say they this had this club and this person had that yeah. club. Still a community. Absolutely. That's 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 kind of the beauty of Memphis is uh just like you guys. I mean when we when we first talked, it's like uh 
man, we're all just one spoke in the wheel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, when my spoke is broke, you know, your spoke's going to still be running, you know, so to speak. Well, it's, that's, it's important to respect people like yourself and kind of the contributions you've made to Memphis music and the artists you've worked with and stuff you produce in your studio and just the stories you tell. I mean, that's, that's something that's really valuable because you, in well, that era, that's it. when, that's when music was changing for, you know, for a lot of, a lot of stuff that exists now, it wouldn't be the way that it is now without the work that you put in. So spoken the wheel, but also just, you know, link in the chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate it's orderly. that. Well, we got to keep it going. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, Memphis, uh, you know, I used to, used to some of my students that were blues oriented, I would, uh, what I call Bill Street Boot Camp. <laughs> and uh, Jason Rice, who that's Fox Killers. Mm-hmm. I remember Jason, you know, he was going to school out of town. He'd come in and and uh, I would turn him on to Big Jerry down on Bill Street. You know, he'd be down there playing. And Big Jerry knew if you took lessons from Brad, you, you, you know, you'd be in key yeah. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but I sent Jason down there and uh, – Shoot, Josh, well, Josh Roberts, he was always uh, super gifted. But uh, quite a few others, you know, I mean, I, Mike Lewis, uh, Ashley Bishop, uh, you know, just a bunch of them that took lessons. Uh, actually, how one of my students from Yarbrough's Music, and this would have been earlier 80s, a guy named Scott Dodge, uh, and he was taking lessons. He was about around the same age as David Dunn, who took guitar from me. Of course, David ended up being a great bass player, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, which I, I, I'm kind of glad. Like when his dad called me and said, "Man, what's that shit David's learning?" I'm like, "Hey, yeah. his taste is going to change as he gets older." You know, Mister Dunn. Mm-hmm. You know, we call, his name is Charlie. Nickname they called him Squeaky. But uh, <laughs> I'll throw I, I, that, I don't know I'll, if I want to know how you earned that. I'll, I'll throw that one in there. Uh, but uh, anyway, Scott, you know, I used to push him, you know, answer an ad in the paper, meet new people. Yeah. You know, yeah. go jam with people you don't even know, you know. And uh, he answered an ad in the paper, and it was Blind Mississippi Morris, and he was managing this vocal group, and they rehearsed at some gym. And Scott said about the second or third rehearsal, well, there wasn't any money going down, so that everybody wasn't showing up. So him and Blind Morris would just sit around playing blues, you know, like <laughs> E-Shuffler or this or that. And uh, finally, Scott goes, man, these guys, they ain't going to show up. Let's go. We, we ought to be on Bill Street making some tip money. And that's what happened. They went down there and started playing. Uh, actually... In the 80s, there was a gazebo just east of the New Daisy. Where y'all like y'all the, may remember okay. that gazebo. Where the Pepsi Pavilion is now? Uh, well, no, that's on the other side. That's on the west side. Oh, oh on the east oh, side, there was down. a gazebo, I want to say. And there was also the Handy House, which was mm-hmm. actually the Blues Foundation yeah. back then. And uh, But I remember Scott, man, I remember them like – you know, they had, they'd bought some PA stuff from me, and I'd sold Blind Morris a um, 110 Tweed Viberlux that somebody had painted black that sounded killer mm. for harmonica, running a bullet mic through yeah. a harmonica. And I want to say Scott had bought, 
I had turned Don McMinn had traded in his blonde baseman to JC's Good Vibrations. And I, I went down there one day and I saw that amp and I was like, hey, Scott, you want an amp like my blonde baseman? Here it is. So I ended up, I think I bought it and then, you know, he made payments to me or something and <laughs> paid it off. Or How whatever. do you remember all these guitars and all this equipment? Man, I don't know. <laughs> you got it my, in there like hard, it's solid like you say it with so much confidence my, my, like my, my hard drive should be like you know there should be an external hooked up yeah, got a little external drive well now, i can remember dates i can remember bands i can remember man i, I you know where your car keys are though yeah 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 they're in you, that jacket yeah. and they're in the engineered room in the left pure confidence left, for anyone that's left pocket can't discern that from his voice well let's uh let's hear another track what do you say yeah, well, we got. Uh, let's go weird. Let's do a reggae blues. What do you now, think? Now, this one, I'm interested. Good. Tell me how this works. Like, I, where, where did I, this come from? Man, I had wanted to cut, I wanted to do something besides. I mean, most of those blind Mississippi Morris records, it's not, you know, a lot, you know, back then, you know, it's almost like if you heard a blues record, it seemed like it was just, you know, three shuffles and, you know, it was. I don't know, just trying to be creative, come up with something a little different. Uh, this was, I'd always, I'd been wanting to cut a reggae blues song, and this was the... Well, let's, let's, uh, let's hear it. Just All right. Why not? Let's do it. Well, who you with tonight? Right. 
just let me hold you tonight. Oh, just let me hold you tonight. For sure. Yeah, that's Dan Cochran on bass guitar, Tony Adams on drums, Russ Wheeler keys, and the keyboard uh, uh, percussions, uh, myself and Blind Mississippi Morris. Uh, so so how did you, like, hey, I'm going to make a blues reggae song? Well, luckily, uh, the first record we did for the record company, so we always had to you know, give them what we were doing, and they'd say yay or nay, and this Some, and like, that. Some, like, pre-production or something? Yeah, this one, I had bought, I'd put the Ampex 2-inch machine in the studio and was determined, Tony and I were, uh, produced this CD, and we turned it in. It was called Bad to Worse. And... Uh, at that time, they turned the CD down. They signed this other guy that they thought from California that was a B3 guy, which they 
you know, they went with him and they didn't they didn't take that record, which was actually cool with me. Yeah. Uh I'm not gonna get into all the uh record company type stuff, but uh <laughs> turned out that guy he had already cut that stuff that he was cutting with them with somebody else and had already signed a contract. Cause see if we if we'd have done it on our first first C D with Ice House, it was a twenty page contract. And one of the lines in the contract, they got fifty percent publishing in the universe as we know it now and or if it changes. Yeah. That's like infinity, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have, if we want to fight, fight them on anything, we have to pay for the auditing. We have to pay for their lawyer, all that crazy stuff. In which, you know, I had a pretty good lawyer look at it, but uh, that was kind of common in 1995. That's kind of before then. There was deals where. They got 100% publishing. Yeah, that was yeah. just part of it. Now, what I did learn that I wasn't supposed to know about, and, I, and I'm just going to say this. I'm not going to name any names, but say one time uh, I was looking at charges, what I was charged, say, for mastering. And uh, I had gone in after, and maybe uh, this was uh, Larry Nix at Ardent, and of course, his son's done a lot of mastering mm -hmm. for me, Kevin. Kevin, we've worked with him a lot. Yeah, <clears throat> he's, we've had. And a... the, actually, the Blind Mississippi Morris CD was one of Kevin's first CDs oh, really? working really? with his dad to master. Oh, that's awesome! Oh, wow. I emailed him today, actually. Yeah, yeah, down in Alabama. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, somehow on a computer, I saw some of the charges that were we were being charged, and. I already knew, you know, I'd just gotten a record mastered, a John Weston record mastered. And I want to say it was, I'll say it was 450 bucks, five, I'll say it's 500 bucks. But when I look on this computer and I see the charge for mastering and it's double and I'm like, Hmm. And then the person looked at me and said, cost of doing business. And I'm like, okay. What? Yeah. So, you know, always, uh, and of course, we've through the years, you know, we've seen a lot of musicians sue record companies and win. You know, always pay attention to your business. I mean, all of us, when we first start playing guitar or drums or anything, man, it's the magic of music, the beauty, how it makes you feel, how it makes people feel that come to see you. Hey, man, that was great, blah, blah, blah. The good stuff, yeah. You know, all the good mojo that goes with music, that's what makes good music. But at the same time, uh, as you go along, it's like, well, you know, I want, you know, I want to know more about guitar, so I take theory and composition, and I do this, and I want to learn more about recording. You know, the more you know, the more you're worth. And it also puts you in the know, because uh, whenever the, money's like the root of all evil, and when you do business, Especially, you know, it ain't your best buddy. It, it could be a record company. Yeah. And, and it may just be a, a person that maybe you've only been around them five times. You're going to trust them with your wallet. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so the more you uh, read those contracts, understand those contracts, 
don't be afraid to ask questions. How come? Well, I thought we sold 5,000 CDs. We ought to have that production money paid off by now. Yeah. You know, you mind if I look at the books? You know, don't be, <laughs> don't be afraid to ask. I mean, you know, I don't want to get all technical on no, you. No, that's, uh, that's great. That's but it's something that uh, a factor, musicians, you know, I mean, we just we just want to play music and want to record music. And uh, sometimes that kind of stuff can, you know, if you worry about it, it can stymie your creativity. Because when you're in here in the studio and you're wanting to get the good mojo going and then you know, you know, some people, I mean, I like to, when I go in the studio, it's like, man, I don't, I don't want everybody looking at the clock worrying about 20 bucks, you know what I mean? Or 50 yeah. bucks. Yeah. You know, if we go over a little bit, okay. Hey, no, you know, this is kind of, this is what we all agreed on. You know, if you guys got to go outside and smoke or you want to go get a daggum pizza or whatever, I ain't going to charge you 50 bucks for going down here and getting you a pizza. Right. <clears throat> you know, maybe we take a dinner break. You know, everybody go chill, come back or whatever. But, mm -hmm. but really paying attention to your business and generally being is a decent a good human thing. being, right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, as we all know, you know, that's no, not always the case. Maybe somebody's daddy was a politician. You know, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to get off into that too hard. But <laughs> you know, depends on who taught him the, the bit. Which you know, the business. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there used to be a book called the. Uh, the business of music, but every there's a lot of things that go on that ain't in that book. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. It's some little little nooks and crannies uh, in uh, in music business. Yeah, you know, I'm sure. Uh, well, when it comes to contracts and copyrights, you know, a lot of times cats, you know, say back in the fifties, maybe they didn't know about all that stuff, mechanical license, mm -hmm. you know, things. Mm -hmm. Which we we actually have a question for you about that after podcast. <laughs> which yeah. one, on which thing? Just working through it, we, working through it, trying to figure yeah, out how to lay all that stuff out yeah. and and be fair to everyone involved and yeah, be professional and also make sure everyone's protected and respect the artistry above all else because it's not necessarily a matter of trying to take advantage of people. It is trying to create and just acknowledging yeah. that there is a reality to the business. Yeah, well, and having people, to address it and make it make it happen. <laughs> it's just like if we we were going to do a record deal. It's really best, even though sometimes maybe after we record, not before you record, so you don't ruin the uh, momentum of the mm -hmm. music. But there's times like, hey man, maybe we need to get together tomorrow and talk. You know, put all the cards on the table and say, this is this maybe here's we're figuring it's probably going to be eighty hours to cut this record. Do you think you can do it in that? You know, put all the cards on the table so everybody's aware of. What the time investment? Yeah, yeah and just what it's going to every what it what it you know. Hey, we're going to do a mail out, or we're going. Brett's going to go over here and knock on some doors. You know, mm -hmm. what I mean, and we got we we you know, he's not going to do it for nothing. You know, because if he goes over here and knocks on some doors, and he got to take somebody out to lunch, or he's going to buy a beer, or whatever he's going to do. Everybody's time is worth something, but. uh Making make sure somebody's not gouging you. It's a bad deal. Yeah, because there's lots of bad deals. Mm -hmm. Lots of bad people out there looking to get That's a good right. deal. Yeah. Well, one thing for sure, if somebody is interested in giving you a deal, that is the 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 green flag that hey, 
you have something that somebody's interested in, yeah. which means it's worth something. Mm-hmm. Right. And if it's taken care of properly, which a lot of cats in Memphis have gotten deals, you know, I'm not going to, I mean, I, I wasn't involved, but I want to say there was maybe a person getting people deals uh, back in the 70s that maybe charged too much money. Say so they get you a $125,000 record deal in 74, which was a pretty good chunk of money. Yeah. But all of a sudden, that lawyer or that person takes 30, 40% of your record deal when maybe if they had just took 20%, just not say someone not like Colonel Parker, they got mm-hmm. 50%. Because mm-hmm. those, you know, now saying that, uh, what happens is maybe monies that would have been used, especially in the 70s, to get reviews and ads and magazines that would have helped people find out who this band is. Right. That went to somebody that, you know, that money's gone. Yeah. So you got a good record, but you don't have the money to promote it. Right. Hmm. You know, so you got to. You know, always pay attention to where your dollars is going. Yeah, for you know, sure. That, True that, of anything, but especially you know, uh, along with you know, or you have a manager that you trust that everybody just say we're all here and we all know each other, and uh, there, there's usually somebody hanging out around the band that's, that you've known a while. Maybe they've gone to school. It's always good to go to school and learn about contracts and things maybe a young lawyer or somebody that digs the music and they're not necessarily trying to get rich off of one band. Right. Uh, it's always good to kind of sometimes have somebody in between, say, the band and the record company because, you know, sometimes band members, musicians are very uh, moody <laughs> and, and just say, you know, just say the drummer, oh, F you, man, I ain't, you know, that's a shit deal or whatever. You know what I mean? You yeah. kind of maybe, you might need a middleman that's smooth. Yeah. Knows how to a talker. politely uh, tell them what needs to be yeah. done. You know, or, or they don't, or hey, man, you know, my guys, they just don't feel right about that. Yeah. You know, a little smoother than mm-hmm. <laughs> taking him out back. <laughs> Breaking <Yeah>. some kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh anyway, uh Yeah, I think uh, we got some we got some more music. You wanna, we got a yeah, more songs man, to go through. Uh, uh what did I oh I brought this was done this past year. A buddy of mine I went to school with, Bruce Baker, uh started sending me some stuff. Of course I'm not as high tech as you guys. He'll send it to me in a MP three, like two track. And then my wife will put it on a CD, and I'll load it into the in my into my system. Yeah. And cut. Uh, I think I cut. Uh, it's called "I'll Be Waiting," and I ended up doing the slide guitar and the baritone tremolo guitar. Russ Wheeler on keys, Bruce Baker on vocals, and probably a Rickenbacker twelve string, maybe a Tele, and probably a J forty five would be my guess. He, he's kind of old school a lot of people when they hear it or hear him he remind he'll remind well y'all listen to it and check it out see what you think yeah babe you're in a dark pit watching it 
I do love playing the blues and of course playing slide guitar that's you know i listen to elmore james and i want to say the first heavy duty uh festival i saw at the shell it was almost like a slide lesson i mean buca white mississippi fred mcdowell furry lewis uh Moloch was on it uh johnny winter you know it was like a a complete from the from the roots all the way up to blues rock, mm-hmm. you know, slamming. Um, 
but that's kind of those were some of my influences back in the day. Of course, I saw Dwayne Allman at the Shell, and then I saw him at the Coliseum. The Shell's uh, still full swing. I mean, yeah, obviously man. not not right now, but yeah, you know, in general, they're they're doing the free live concerts what every month, mm-hmm. spring and summer. Yes, they've done well, a great job. They were well, I, yeah. Like I said, not yeah. right now, but yeah. Well, um, even I mean, this whole those are last, great shows. I've been to many of them. This whole last uh, well, this past what eleven months have been pretty much horrible for the music business. I mean, have you I have you felt the felt the heat? Felt yeah, the impact. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily, you know, my house is paid for, and I can go out the back door to the studio and not go crazy. Yeah. Where, say, some friends of mine that don't have a studio, you know, and then you get depressed and uh, don't pick up your guitar, and then all of a sudden the calluses and the muscles in your hand are getting wimpy. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, I've actually had some weirdo... Uh, hand cramps you know left hand cramps from uh either going back to it you know it's not like it's none of us are playing as much as probably what we would be playing just the whole you know we've had uh just in the air you know what i mean you just have the same energy to feed from yeah and that's why you you know one thing is don't watch too much tv Mm -hmm. uh you know break out your guitar your bass or whatever uh you know, you'll have way more fun than watching that TV or news or any of that kind of stuff. And, of course, people, a lot of people can't let it go. You know, it's all over Facebook. You can't already open your phone up without, you know, That's very seeing true. some kind of yeah, it's hard to negative energy. And it has negative to be, energy it has to be an intentional. Yeah, it's got to be like an intentional thing to separate yourself from it. Mm-hmm. Put it down completely. Well, we're all, for a we all while. have these phones. I mean, it, it was... I remember when I, when our first CD came out, I didn't even own a CD player. <laughs> I had to go get one, you know. Uh, yeah. And for years, I mean, I didn't have a cell phone. I'd use uh, my wife would make me. You know, one one time I'm trying to think it was around two thousand two thousand one. You know, I, my wife would print me off my maps. My first gig was Princeton, New Jersey. It's a map and quest. Then, yeah, map quest. And then my <laughs> next one, let's say Memphis to Princeton, New Jersey, Princeton, New Jersey to Rockland, Maine, Rockland, Maine to Ottawa, Canada, Ottawa, Canada, Canada back out two hours. There was a festival uh, uh, east of New York, and then uh, and then I think we played in Greenwich Village, and then there was another festival in. Pennsylvania, you know, I mean, and I wasn't even, uh, it seemed like I had a flip phone, but it wouldn't always work, especially, yeah. you know, up in the mountains, cutting across from Rockland, Maine to Ottawa, Canada. <laughs> One of those old <clears throat> Motorola ones. And, and then, you you know, you're driving along and, oh, road washed out. And it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, and then I'm, I'm Bust looking. Bust out for, the map book. Yeah, well, then, and then and then some car pulls up and they turn around. So I followed this car because they got Canadian plates. And then you're driving along and then you see the city lights lighting up on the clouds. So you know you're at least because I was getting I had two tanks, you know, on this van I had two gas tanks. Yeah. But both of them were getting close to E, and I'm <laughs> sweating. And plus, I didn't have any Canadian money. And I went into the service station and I'm like. Man, I don't have you know we're from America. I don't have any. And I said, how much, you know, you know, what can I do? And he said, 
give me 20 and you can get 10 bucks worth of gas. And it's like, what are you going to do? You give them the 20 and get 10 bucks worth of gas. Cause I knew the next day, once I got in the hotel and I could sell some CDs, I'd have some Canadian money. Right. <laughs> you know, Scrape so by. Ten, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just getting, you know, road dogging as, as we call it. <laughs> got to do what you got to do. <laughs> I bet that's a long list of stories. Road mm. dogging. Man. Yeah. Well, I want us. To, I want us to get to all the music. We got one more track you wanted to share tonight. Oh yeah, well, let's see. Uh, uh, actually, this was a, a session that Robert Knight and Hawk and I did with our buddy Henry Weck, Michael Lutz, which they are Brownsville Station. Yeah, and I met Henry at the Hope Church where they were doing a, th- a music series in the summer. Was this uh, up on Walnut Grove? Hope Presbyterian? Yes. Okay. Yes. I played my 19th birthday there. Yes. Big old venue, sold out. Over yeah, a thousand man. people. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That was that's, awesome. Uh, but I met Henry, and uh, actually Henry was on, uh, you know, he's on a couple of drum tracks. I'm not sure if he's getting to play drums right now, but this was a record we did, I think, in 2014. And I did some recording for him this last year, but I, I'm not sure what's going on with that Brownsville station uh, on this same record that this particular, I picked this song just cause, it, but we did redo smoking in the boys room with a, with the Nighthawk on uh, uh harmonica, me on slide guitar. Cause uh cub Coda, he was, uh, he loved the blues. And of course, Henry knew that. And Henry kind of dug what I do at my place anyway. Any, anyway, that's a, a long time, was it not a long time coming? That's Fred Sanders. Long time. Can't remember the name of the song. You got it. Uh, I think he's got it. Drew, look at that. Uh, doesn't even say. It just says audio track. All right. Well, we'll we'll know once she gets going. We'll find it. Long long time gone. Long time gone. <laughs>
Time gone. Long time gone. Got that good Memphis sound. Yeah, they had to put a little bit of Memphis. I'm still taking in the reggae track. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's 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 adventurous. I like that. All right. The hard Man, I'm sure I talked too long. Of course we could be here till Tuesday. Yeah. Well you <laughs> can well, always is, come yeah, back. This, for is, another this one? is just the first of many. We just this is really just us wanting to have a chance to sit down with the guys that played music when Memphis music was becoming Memphis music hear what they had going on, hear what they value, hear what they were doing, what they're still working on. It's awesome to see you come in and share this, but also know that you were cutting a track last night. Oh, you yeah. know, 2021, like that's just, that's awesome that you're able to still push creativity and work with people and put good stuff out there. And you're an awesome guy. I've known you for a, for a while. And this is the first time that we've had a chance to sit down and talk in depth. And every time we talk, I'm always inspired and just really motivated by the things that you put out there. So I appreciate right. your time. Appreciate you coming out. Appreciate you sharing the music. You have so much more music. I want to find a way that we can share this music and all the other music that you have. Um, we'll be thinking that. We'll talk about it. We'll work it out. We'll share right. it. We'll put it out there. I'm game. I'm game. <laughs> Keep going. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, Brad. Thanks for coming out. Home thank Legend you, Series. Thank you, Nick. Yep, of course. Thanks yeah, for coming look out. Look forward to the next one. Who's the man behind the curtain? Drew. <laughs> Thank Drew, you, Drew Beats, Drew Morris. <laughs> Drew Morris. Producer, Station 8 Productions. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Yep. Thank you. Uh, thank you guys for listening. If you want to find out some more information on us as a business, you can check out our website, station8productions.com. Or for more content, visit our YouTube, youtube.com backslash station8productions. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>